0: good morning, beloved. How y'all doing this morning? Mm. How y'all doing this morning? Amen. Amen. Now, I want to be clear. It's okay if you're not doing all right this morning. It's all right. It's okay. God still has us. God still loves us. God still provides for us one of the wonderful things about God you come to him as you are you have to perform to come into his presence amen as we come into his presence now let's let's pray together heavenly father we come to you in the name that is above every name the name at which every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. We come to you in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, whom you made to be a sin offering for us, whom you raised from the grave three days later for our justification, who has ascended into heaven at your right hand and intercedes for us even now, who is our wisdom, our righteousness, Our sanctification, our redemption. In His name and for His glory and for our joy in Him, we ask now, Father, that you would bless the preaching of your word. Not just the preaching, Father, bless the hearing of your word. Well, we pray, take your word and press it into our hearts. shape us, change us, mold us into your image and likeness more fully. For some of us, that means giving us new life this morning. So those who've come this morning dead in their sins, not yet made alive through faith in Christ, we pray that you would give them faith. And for others of us, that means, Lord, we need to hear your word and the counsel of your word in our fight of faith. That we would not turn back to the world. That we would not give in to temptation and sin. That we would not falter our journey to glory. And Still others of us, Lord, need not a word of correction, but a word of healing and help and comfort. Our various needs can only be met by your Holy Spirit. So Holy Spirit, we pray, take take your word, apply it to every heart as every heart has need. Do this for the glory of Jesus and the glory of the Father. Do this for the joy of the church, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Again, if you're visiting with us this morning, uh, I want to add my word of welcome. Uh, I'm Pastor T, one of the four pastors here at Anacostia River Church. We're so glad that you're here. We can't think of any place we would rather you to be than to worshiping God with us and hearing uh, from his word. Now, you you may have picked up at the uh, guest table out back uh, a new sermon card. There's a new sermon card out. If you didn't get one on the way in, Please take two on the way out. Put one in your Bible, put one at your desk, where you sit most or what have you. Um, this lists the sermons for the upcoming four months, uh, so you'll know where we will be in God's Word from week to week. I want to encourage you to take this and use this perhaps as part of your quiet time. Read the, the t- upcoming text um, for the sermon um, each morning. Pray for the preaching of the Word. Pray for the hearing of the Word. Or, or take it, if, it's, if you got something else you're doing in your quiet time, take it and Saturday night. Use this as part of your Saturday night routine. Don't just fall asleep, right? Go to sleep with spiritual purpose. Read the text that's going to be heard on Sunday morning and ready your heart, ready your ears to hear God's word. Now, if you're visiting with us this morning, I want you to know that we are a congregation that aims to be committed to God's word. And that's because of what we believe God's word to be. Very literally, God's word. That the Bible is um, the, the, the message that God wants us to have, that he literally breathed out, that he inspired through apostles and prophets to write it down over some 1,600 years. 40 different languages, um, or 40 different authors, three different languages, excuse me. And, and this word has been preserved for us, that we might hear the voice of God, and that we might know God. And that's why we preach this word. That's why we want to be careful with this word. Because this word is life and life-giving. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Esther chapter 2. We continue in our series in the book of Esther, which we started uh, two weeks ago. Uh, Last week we were blessed to hear our brother Colin preach to us about um, the, the life in the spirit and fighting the flesh. This week and for the next few weeks we come back to our study of the book of Esther. Now one of the things we said last week in introduction Uh, to this book, is that Esther is famously uh, sort of regarded as unusual in the Bible. Unusual because God is not actually mentioned by name in this book. And that's caused some people some consternation, caused some people to raise some questions, things of that sort. But as we're going to see in this text, God's hand is all over this story. It's all over this part of Israel's history. And it's learning to live in anticipation of God's invisible hand moving, that is the key to the Christian life. It's the key to living faithfully as exiles in a world that's hostile to people of faith. In other words, if you want to sort of go on with encouragement and hope, if you want to go on in perseverance, then we ought to become people who learn to expect God to move in unusual circumstances even circumstances that at first appear quite negative to us. And that's what we're going to see when we come to Esther chapter 2. This chapter is going to take us through three scenes, and this is my outline for the sermon. Scene number 1, the king decides to replace Vastai, his former queen, using a beauty contest. That's what we're going to see in verses 1 to 4. Number 2, in scene number 2, We get introduced to Mordecai and Esther, and Mordecai and Esther are caught up in this contest because Esther is beautiful, verses 5 to 11. And in the final scene, the story resolves with Esther becoming queen by the providence of God. Esther becoming queen by the providence of God. We see that in verses 12 to 18. So look with me in Esther chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa the citadel under custody of Hegai, the king's eunuch who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashton. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is, Esther, the daughter of his uncle. For she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Hegai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Hegai who had charge of the women and the young woman pleased him and won his favor and he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, When the young woman went in to the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go in to the king again unless the king delighted in her, and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go in to the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. This is God's word. Notice the first scene. The king decides to replace Vashti. Chapter 2 opens with the words, after these things. These things, you'll remember, refer back to chapter 1. That's when King Ahasuerus had thrown this huge party in order to display his great wealth. He's king over 127 provinces, all the way from India, all the way to Ethiopia. And all of them are gathered together, and he is boasting about his wealth. And at one point, uh, he gets to drinking. He drinks for seven days. And at the end of the seven days, he's all tipsy. He decides he's going to show off his wife too. And you remember, Vashti refused to come because she had dignity and, and respected herself enough not to be sort of paraded before drunken, lustful men. King gets mad, asks his advisors what they should do. One of the advisors tells him, you know what, you need to get rid of Vashti because Vashti is showing out like this with you. All the other women in the country are going to be showing out with all their husbands too. We shut this down, get you a new wife better than that one. Y'all remember that, right? And so he does that. Now, verse verse 1 reminds us of these things. And it tells us that finally the king's anger has abated. His anger has, has calmed down. And now, look at Esther chapter 2, verse 16. In the end of this scene, we're told that it was in the 10th month, which is the month of Tebeth, which would be our December, in the seventh year of his reign. So now, in chapter 1, verse 3, we we began in the third year of his reign. Now we're in the seventh year of his reign. There's been been four years between the events of chapter 1 and the events of chapter 2. He's been without a queen for four years. Now, historians tell us that this is the period of time where Xerxes or Ahasuerus had gone to war with, with Greece. He sought to conquer Greece and, and, and Rome, excuse me, and, and, and he lost that war. If you've seen the, the movie 300, you've seen a depiction of that, of that battle, of that fight. He comes back. He's mad because he ain't got no wife. He's mad because he done lost the war. He finally calms down, and he tries to figure out what he should do. Notice now. He thinks about what she had done, Esther. And he thinks about what had been decreed against her, the law that was written against her. The the phrasing there is interesting. It seems that Ahasuerus thinks all his troubles is other people's fault. It's what Esther had done, not, not what he did in his drunkenness. It's what had been, or excuse me, Vashti, what Vashti had done Help me, get your good help me, brothers. It's what Vasti had done, not what he had done in his drunkenness. And it's what that, 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 that advisor had advised and was decreed, not the law that he passed. So this passive tense makes it seem like this ain't my fault. Woe is me. Everything is being done against me. When you start to get a picture of this king. He's given to anger, he's easily influenced. And nothing's ever really his fault. Some commentators tell us that after chapter 1, that Ahasuerus or Xerxes might have had those seven advisors beheaded. We don't know that for sure, but they don't appear in the rest of this book. Notice now what, who he's surrounded with. He's surrounded, verse 2, with young men who attended him. So he's gone from the seven princes of the Medo-Persian Empire as his advisors and the only ones who saw his face in chapter 1 to now being surrounded by seven young men, seven young cats who are his attendants and friends. He's gone from taking advice from princes to taking advice from servants. Now, it might be helpful to remember what the Bible generally says about youth and youthfulness. It's not flattering. That most often the Bible will present youth and youthfulness as foolish, as lacking in wisdom. A young man being praised for wisdom happens in the Bible, but it's a a rarity, really. And here this king is taking advice from from the young people that surround him. And you might remember King uh, Rehoboam of Israel in 2 Chronicles 10. Anybody remember that story? The young guy, he becomes king. And, and he, he he calls together the elders of Israel, wants to know sort of what he should do as king. And the elders of Israel say, basically, your father, he was kind of harsh. You know, if you sort of lighten up on us, the people will love you and follow you all of your days. He rejects the the counsel of the elders. And 2 Chronicles 10 tells us he calls together the young young folks that he grew up with. And he takes their counsel. And you know how young people are sometimes. None of y'all are young. I ain't talking about none of y'all, okay? But you you know how some young people are sometimes, you know, they, they headstrong and they rash. And the young people said, no, I'll tell you what you do. You tell them that your little finger is thicker than your daddy's waist, that, that you think your dad was hard on them. Tell them how hard you're going to be on them." And he took the advice of the young of his young friends. And before the chapter ends, he's running for his life because the, the people rebel against him. But in 2 Chronicles 10, verse 16, we have this little sneaky line in there. It says these words about Rehoboam. So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by God that the Lord might fulfill his word. In other words, the Lord used the folly of Rehoboam, the folly of those young people around Rehoboam to accomplish his purposes for Israel. The same thing is happening here with Esther. The young servants have a foolish idea. But it's an idea that in God's providence, God will use to accomplish the rescue of his people. So look at their idea in verses 2 to 4. Young men say, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under custody of Higgai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. So here this king is with a problem. He doesn't have a queen, marriage with the queen is broken. Uh, it's been four years now. And how does his young friends decide to solve that problem? Let's have a beauty contest. Let's have a beauty contest. An international beauty contest. This might have been the first Miss Universe pageant. And they are specific about the eligibility, aren't they? Two times they say, let her be beautiful, let her be young, let her be a virgin. That's the emphasis. It's on appearance and age, and purity. And just as an aside, it's it's an interesting sort of quick glimpse into what's called purity culture these days. Isn't it interesting that in purity culture, the burden for purity is shifted to women while men go on doing what men do? Right? Ahasuerus ain't young. He probably ain't cute. Right? And he ain't no virgin. But that's, that's, what, that's what happens, right? In a land where women are objectified, beauty, beauty becomes the only qualification for acceptance. Well, beauty and a willingness to accept the objectification. We must understand that in a land where women are objectified and beauty is the main or only currency that some women have, then women would only be able to cope in society by exploiting their own beauty. It's a pernicious trap. In a land where women are objectified, we must understand, in oppressive systems like that, those systems insist that the oppressed comply with their own oppression. The women who are going to be gathered in this beauty contest, they're not volunteers. They're taken into it. I wish to point out once again that the women in Esther chapter 1 and 2, from the queen on down, have no representation in the halls of power. They have no representation in government. They have no access to the king other than as a part of their harem. Their future is being determined without them. Objectification robs women of their voice and of representation as anything other than objects. The backroom lawmaking of chapter 1 is combined now with the adolescent advice of chapter 2. And it combines to create a very dangerous existence for women in Esther and Vashti's time. Scene 1 ends with King Ahasuerus being pleased with this beauty contest idea. So he orders all 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia to send their most beautiful young virgins to his beauty contest to become a part of his harem. Don't forget the culture that this is happening. With. That brings us to the second scene where Mordecai and Esther now get caught up. They get swept up in the king's beauty contest. So we get our introduction now to the two sort of heroes that. That, that exists throughout the rest of this book. First of all, we meet Mordecai, the cousin who loves like a father. You see, we're told five or six things about Mordecai there. Number one, verse five, he is a Jew. That's the first thing we're told because the storyteller now wants to bring that to the front. He wants to bring the, the identity and the existence and the, and the difficulty of God's people to the front so the hearers can see it very clearly. And in calling Mordecai a Jew, of course, the Bible is referring both to Mordecai's ethnicity and his religion. And in naming this first about Mordecai, we get the sense that Mordecai is faithful to both, his ethnic people and his God. Second thing we're told is that he lives in Susa, the capital city there of the empire. He's in the middle of where things happen. And then we're given a little bit of his genealogy in verse 5. See there, we're told that uh, he is the son of Jair, son of Shammai, son of Kish, a Benjaminite. He's able to trace his lineage back to Kish, who is the father of Saul, the first king of Israel. So he has come now from a a royal descendancy, a royal family. He's part of the tribe of Benjamin. And verse 6, Mordecai is an exile, as is all the Jews at that time. This is how how we know. This is how Mordecai got to Susa. Generations before him, 115 years or so before him, um, Nebuchadnezzar had conquered Jeconiah, the, uh, one of the last kings of Israel. and He led the the king and the priestly class and the royal class into captivity in Babylon. And 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 Mordecai's family was a part of that group of exiles who were conquered and taken to Babylon. So he's there in Susa. He's from a family that. Knows how to move around power. He hasn't forgotten those lessons. He is probably using those very lessons as part of his survival technique in Babylon. Notice the next thing we're told. That Mordecai raises Esther as his own daughter. Verse 7. Esther's parents have died. We don't know how or when, but she's an orphan and Mordecai now is recreating family for her. He not only treats her as his, as his cousin, he cares for her as his own daughter. And we see how caring and protective Mordecai is, don't we? In in a verse like verse 11. Look there with me real quickly. Every day Mordecai would walk in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. You get the picture of a of a caring, generous, open-hearted, thoughtful man. And we should say one last thing about Mordecai. We should say something about his name. His name actually comes from the state god of Babylon, Marduk. He's adopted this name, and it suggests, particularly when you look at verse 10, which we'll talk about in a moment, it suggests that he has understood something about Babylonian culture and how to get along in Babylonian culture. He's adopted this sort of outward naming of the culture that he might be able to protect the inward relationship that he has with God. It suggests that he might have even become an official in the Babylonian Empire. In fact, there is some archaeological evidence from around this time of a certain person who was an official accountant named Marduka. Translation, Mordecai, could be him, could be someone different. When we meet him, what we see is a cousin who loves like a father and knows how to move as an exile in a foreign oppressive land. In the same section, we're also introduced to Hadassah, the star of the story. Hadassah is Esther's Hebrew name. That's important. The fact that we're told her Hebrew name, again, hints at the import or the importance of her true identity as a Jewish woman. It also hints at her role in the coming resistance. See, in the Bible, names are are very important. You think about, for example, God changing Abram's name to Abraham, signifying that he would make Abraham the father of of many nations, that through Abraham he was going to save the, the peoples of the earth. He changes his name, or does a very similar thing with Jacob, the trickster, He changes his name to Israel. But at other times, we see this interaction around names, and, and we realize that it's not necessarily uh, about God's saving work in creation, that the name is reflective, but sometimes about God's people sort of resisting the, 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 the culture and the influence of the world around them. So think about the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 1, we're told about Belteshazzar. That's Daniel's real name. That's his Hebrew name. And we're told about the, the three Hebrew boys, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. That's Daniel 1, 6, and 7. What's the first thing the Babylonians do? They change Belteshazzar's name to Daniel, and they change the, the three Hebrew boys' name to Shadrach, Meshach, and that bad Negro, right? Abednego. <laughs> See, their names were in part the battlefield for resistance. Their names were this sort of battlefield on which the the oppressive, influencing, dominant culture sought to exert itself against the, the minority conquered people who were resisting and trying to maintain a sense of identity and religious freedom. So when we're introduced to an orphan exile by her Hebrew name, Hadassah, and then told her Babylonian name, Esther, which means star, we're brought, being brought into that power dynamic between oppressor and oppressed. Exile and captor. And we're given a clue to her coming role in the story. We've already mentioned that she was raised by her uncle or cousin, excuse me. Verse 7 says she had neither father nor Mother. She's a young woman by the time that we meet her. We don't know exactly when her parents died, but the fact that Mordecai is given credit for raising her suggests that, that her parents died when she was quite young. And Mordecai has been the one responsible for her upbringing. So she will be facing the world not just as a Jewish person, but also facing the world as an orphan and an adoptee. She'd have all the feelings that go with losing your parents very young and with knowing the love of a cousin who adopted her. There would be at the same time this struggle for security because of the loss and and this sort of thankfulness and dependence because of the adoption. She's a young woman whose place in the world probably feels very fragile to her where belonging and separation are significant issues in her soul. Here's the next thing we're told about it. She had a pretty figure and a lovely face. See that there in verse 7? The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. So she met the qualifications for the king's beauty contest. That's why verse 8 tells us notice that she was taken into the king's palace and put in charge of his eunuch to prepare for the contest. That word taken is strong and suggests that she didn't volunteer. She might have been coerced. After all, this is a law passed by the king. That's what I want us to see. That society's attitude toward her body and her beauty put her in danger. It is a threat and a danger to be shapely and beautiful in a culture that only values women as objects. In a very real sense, your body and your beauty become both target and prison because of the attitudes of people around you. This is something that that men have to try to appreciate and understand more. Many women, many of our sisters feel a sense of inescapable vulnerability because of the way society objectifies them and makes them a target for unwanted attention. What a strange and hard existence to be encased in a form that at the same time attracts people and threatens you. So brothers, never catcall or draw attention to a woman's body and beauty unwanted. It's threatening. And brothers, let us be the kind of congregation that honors and protects our sisters. Let us treat them, as Paul says to Timothy, with absolute purity. Let us walk them to their cars, make sure they are safe at night. Let us check one another's attitudes and comments when they're not around. So they don't have to face it and check it when they are around. Let us renew our minds with the word of God so that coarse joking, as Ephesians says, has no place among us. We we want the family of the church to be a place where women can experience uh, an unselfconscious acceptance, where they can appear before God and appear before the family of God without having to be aware of themselves and the threat that they sometimes face in this world. Let's pray for that and work for that. Let me suggest another thing about Esther here, verse 10. Esther was passing. Esther was passing. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. Look at verse 10. Esther had not made known her people or kindred for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. Now she's obeying her cousin here, her adopted father, Mordecai as we said is he's probably smooth around power. He knows how to operate, he knows how to move in and out of the culture and he's told her Don't make your identity known. Now, the fact that she's able to do that is what makes it possible for her to pass. You know what I'm talking about when I say pass? Passing is this sort of strategy for coping when you're a minority in a a dominant culture. Sometimes people are able to pass for the dominant culture, even though they're not a part of the dominant culture. This was a a big thing, for example, in African Americans. One of the strategies that African Americans has used since the time of slavery, and particularly in the 1920s and 29, the Harlem Renaissance that era, passing became a, a, a sort of big topic in thinking about how do we engage with the fact that we are minorities in a dominant culture that has segregated us and oppressed us. Nella Larson wrote a title, a novel by that title called Passing in 1929. You should read it if you're looking for something good to read. If you're not a reader, They've just made it into a movie. So in a couple of weeks, Tessa Thompson is going to play the main character in that novel, Passing. And if you ain't got no money, it'll come on Netflix in November. Or if you ain't comfortable going to the movie, it'll be on Netflix in November. You should see it. But attempting to pass has three possibilities. Number one, you could be successful. But number two, if you succeed, it comes at the cost of any relationship with your family and your people. It's a strategy that isolates you from the community that gave birth to you. And then number three, if you're found out, the consequences of being exposed are serious, even deadly. Right. So Esther now is in this dangerous situation where she is a minority. She is a woman. She is an orphan. She's now in the king's harem because the king objectifies women and Mordecai is advising her. Do not tell her them who you really are. So she's passing. And if she succeeds, that means she's going to be further removed from her people. And if she fails, well, we know what this king is like. need to let that tension carry you through the rest of this book and everything else that unfolds. It explains why she says, if I perish, I perish. It explains why she calls her people to pray for her when it's time to appear before the king. Because she's been put in this soup of danger. She's swimming in this stew of peril. And everything in one sense looks like it is endangering her life. A couple quick lessons here, a couple things to think about, maybe talk about over lunch. First thing is this Esther's going to win this beauty contest, as we'll see, but success does not mean safety. Success does not always mean safety. Sometimes success brings us more danger and more challenges. And that's what we're going to see with Esther. So so don't, beloved, don't don't idolize success. Don't lust for it. Don't, Don't think that that's the solution to all of our problems. It may be to many of our problems, but it would create some problems of its own. We'll see that in Esther's life. Here's another thing. If in some way you're trying to pass and you succeed, what obligation do you have to those you leave behind? So maybe we're not talking about passing racially or ethnically, as we see in this text. Maybe we're talking about trying to pass religiously. You're a Christian. You know you're a Christian, but your co-workers don't. And you're just trying to go along to get along, right? So you do a little bit of what they do, but not everything they do, just so they don't discover that you're a Christian. What are the costs of that? What are the consequences of that to your soul, to your witness, to the cause of Christ? How does Jesus regard that when he says things like this? If you are ashamed of me before men, I'll be ashamed of you before my father in heaven. Anybody trying to pass out there? Or this, does our obligation to those left behind rise to the level of risking our own status and our own lives for them? When is that true? When is that necessary? That's the tension that drives the rest of this book. That's the tension that's in Esther's life and heart that she'll have to make some hard decisions about. And beloved, we're not exempted as God's people from these kinds of tensions. The question is how are we going to resolve it? We're students in high school, and none of our friends seem to be Christians. And they, they wish to do things or they talk in ways that we know would bring us shame before God or shame before our parents even. What are we going to do? We're in the college classroom, and a professor is clearly not a Christian. In fact, he seems to have made it his personal mission to try and upset the faith of other college students. What will we do? Just answer the questions the way he wants to get an A on the test? Or is something more at stake? How will we witness? It happens in the workplace. It happens in the family, beloved that our very own brothers or sisters or our mothers or fathers, Jesus told us he came to bring a sword that would separate us between them sometimes. And when we seek to live for the Lord in obvious ways and outward ways and even sacrificial ways, in ways that non-Christians don't understand and our family's not supportive, how do we graciously resolve that? What will we do? That's a question we actually want to answer before we're in those situations. So that when the situation comes out of a kind of spiritual habit, we answer the way we wish we had before it came. That's the situation Esther is in. Let's go to the third scene real quickly. Number three, Esther becomes queen by the providence of God. Verses 12 to 18 really give us the conclusion of the story. Verses 12 to 14 tell us about the preparation process for the beauty contest. Some of you brothers thought y'all were waiting a long time for your wife to get ready for church this morning. These ladies take a whole year to get ready to go before the king. Six months with this kind of perfume, six months with that kind of perfume, all of which is meant to beautify them even further so that they would, would appear before the queen their, their best foot forward, so to speak. Some commentators say this process was a year long because the king wanted to make sure that all these ladies were in fact virgins and, and weren't maybe pregnant with someone else's child who would then be a successor to the throne. You don't know that, but that's a, a speculation. And these women would be kept under strict guard before, during, and after appearing with the king. They'd be brought to the king they would spend the night with the king, and the next morning they would leave one harem led by Hegai, and then they would go to a second harem led by Shashgaz, right? And they would not appear again to the king unless he called for them by name. That's kind of the process. One woman called at a time, goes to the king, spends the night with the king, and never to be seen again in that first harem. You don't know what's happening to her. She goes to the next harem. Verse 15 to 18 tells us about Esther's turn. Esther appears before the king. And this is when we begin to see more of Esther's character. we begin to see more of Esther's beauty, not just her physical beauty, but what we heard, read about earlier in the service, her inner beauty. She's a wise young woman who trusts the counsel of her elders. She obeys Mordecai's instruction in verse 10. When she gets to Susa and is in the harem, she obeys um, the Haggai's instruction. There's something about her that curries favor, not just the fact that she's pretty, but, but, but probably because she's also very gracious. She listens to the eunuch. She takes his counsel. She trusts his direction. And there's a kind of wisdom in that, isn't there? Who Who knows the king better than the eunuch, you know, who serves the king's pleasure in this regard? So she listens, wins favor with him in verse 15, wins favor with everybody who sees her. She's apparently a woman of excellent social graces, excellent character, and her physical beauty has not gone to her head. She seems humble. When Esther appears before the king, verse 17 says, the king loved Esther more than all the women, And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Verse 18 tells us the king threw a feast in Esther's honor and gave gifts and tax breaks to all the provinces. So we see the sudden rise of a young exile orphan girl all the way to the queen. Of the empire. This, this section ends with Esther winning. And taken together, this section teaches us two things about God. It teaches us, first of all, about God's providence. Again, even though God is not mentioned in this book, not mentioned in this section, we're meant to understand that everything is happening by God's control, by God's providence. Providence is God's special care for his creation, how he acts in the world to accomplish his will. Esther's story is a lot like Joseph's story, isn't it? Remember, Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers, taken into Egypt, and and pretty soon he wins favor with Potiphar. And he becomes the lead servant in Potiphar's home until Potiphar's wife lies on him. Then he gets thrown in prison. And pretty soon he, he earns favor with the prison guard and fellow prisoners. And, and it's from prison that he's brought to attention of Pharaoh. And when he inter- interprets Pharaoh's dream by, by God sort of supernaturally giving him the ability to do that, then he wins favor with Pharaoh, and Joseph rises to become number two in the land of Egypt, the second most powerful man in the world next to Pharaoh. And do you know how Joseph explained that in chapter 50, verse, 50, verse 20? He says to his brothers, You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good to bring salvation to all of these people. All of those things, the selling into slavery, the working for Potiphar, the going to prison, the rising to second in command, was by God's providence. And Esther is experiencing a very similar thing. Her people, having been conquered generations before, brought as exiles into Babylon, losing her parents so that she's now raised by her older cousin, growing up in his home. The beauty that she has, that she didn't give herself that, God gave her that. Right? The, the recognition that, that she receives from the, from the eunuch that is the, that is the king's official, that, that favor God gave her. And when she walks into the king's room, and the king sees her and the king loves her, it's God's providence because God turns the hearts of kings. and He turns this pagan king's heart toward Hadassah, toward Esther. So if we can imagine a narrator saying something like what Joseph says in, in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, the narrator might say something like this. The king meant it for his own pleasure, but God meant it for his pleasure to save the people of Israel as exiles. It's important, beloved, that while we live as exiles, and we sometimes don't hear God's voice, that we don't slip into thinking that God is not ruling, that God is not working. God is always working things together for our good. God is always in the details of our lives, even the painful details of our lives, like losing parents and being taken captive. God is at work in that to do his good pleasure, to demonstrate to us his goodness, his steadfastness, his love. And circumstances may make it hard for us to see the goodness of God. That doesn't mean he's not good. Doesn't mean he's not working. It was God who was at work in Esther's story. His providence bringing about all of this unlikely happening. And God's providence is all over this story. God's providence is all over our lives, beloved. We have to trust Him to see it. And here's the second thing. We learn about God's grace, don't we? Now you you have to you have to see it. In contrast to the king, I think. See, the human actors in this section, they put all their emphasis on the outward appearance of man, don't they? Verse 3, the young officers stress young, beautiful virgins. Verse 4, their proposal is is something that, that is meant to please the king. They tell him to select whomever the king pleases. Literally, in the Hebrew, it says, good in the eyes of the king. Verse 7, even the narrator emphasizes Hadassah's beautiful figure and pleasing to look at. Verse 17, she won grace and favor in his sight. So everybody in this chapter, in some sense, is walking by sight, putting emphasis on the external as the grounds, as the basis for their approval. That phrasing in verse 17 is interesting to me. We're told that Esther won grace and favor in the king's sight. We have to stop and ask ourselves, what kind of grace or favor depends upon someone's appearance or performance? What kind of grace has to be won? Well, the human kind, the fallen kind, the kind of favor and grace, which is really a payment for something somebody else has done or, or, or something about their character. This grace is not that grace that we sing about in Christian hymns. This kind of grace is not that kind of grace that we get from God. Esther is receiving grace and favor from the king because Esther is beautiful. Hadassah receives grace and favor from the king because Hadassah pleases the king in in some way, in some carnal, fallen, fleshly way. But the grace and favor we receive from God does not depend upon our appearance. It does not depend upon our performance. In fact, it cannot be won. The grace and favor we receive from God is only given, and it's given freely, and it's given without regard to who we are and what we've done. Now, oh, you need, you need to hear this. See, that was your place to say amen, to shout right there. That's okay. I'll say it again. The grace and favor we receive from God has nothing, beloved, nothing, hear this now, has nothing to do with our appearance or our performance. I'm trying to free somebody right now because I know that they took a year in this beauty contest to prepare to, to appear before the king. And some of us have been spending decades trying to get cute enough to appear before God. Some of us even who claim to believe the gospel have not deeply understood grace because we think that when we've messed up, we're no longer accepted with God. Because we think if we haven't performed the little rituals that we think make us beautiful in God's sight, that we probably shouldn't go to God right now. Here's how you know you understand grace. You understand grace because you go to God precisely because you messed up. Because precisely because you're not lovely. Precisely because you have no merit, no standing, no favor to claim from God. That's when you know you understand grace. But our problem since Adam and Eve is we sin and we make fig leaves. We sin and we cover ourselves and we hide. And we wait and we long for that day when we think on our own merits we can stand before God and be accepted by him. No, beloved. The Bible says, while we were still sinners, God showed his love for us in this that Christ died for us. It's while we were sinners, while we were still sinners, while we were still unclean, while we were not perfumed but stinking in our sin, while we were ugly in our sin and, and, and not attractive to God because of our sin. It's then that God sent his son into the world to die for us. That, beloved, is grace. That's kindness. That's favor that is not earned. That's what we mean by grace, unmerited favor, unearned favor, undeserved favor. Don't you know that God has been kind to sinners, and we do not deserve it? That's at the heart of the gospel. That's at the heart of this good news that the Bible talks about, that acceptance with God is not a matter of performance. It is a matter of God's loving kindness. All we need to do is accept it, to believe that God proved his love by sending his son to die for our sins, to take the punishment of God in our place, to believe that three days later God raised him from the grave so that we would be righteous in God's sight. And to believe that God does not require of us any special performances, any special acts of duty, any special religious ritual. All God requires of us is to see our need of him, to confess our sins, and to receive and accept the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf, to follow Jesus in faith. And then all of the kingdom, the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of man. All of the kingdom becomes ours through faith in Christ. Forgiveness is ours. Love is ours. Joy is ours. Peace is ours. Mercy is ours. Purity is ours. Righteousness is ours. Mercy is ours. Adoption is ours. All that God is and all that God has becomes ours, beloved, through faith in Jesus Christ. Can you sit with that? Don't move past that too fast. All that God is and all that God has becomes yours and mine through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. All of it by God's grace. Here's the question, beloved, this morning as we close. Have you received that yet? Have you received God's free offer of forgiveness and adoption of eternal life and perfect righteousness in his sight? Have you received his free offer of grace, salvation, of escape from judgment and hell, of an eternal kingdom in heaven? Have you put your faith in Jesus as your Lord and Savior? I prayed you would this morning, that you would confess your sin and put your faith in Jesus and so live forever in his love. That offer is yours now. That offer is yours every moment of your life. But, beloved, our lives are not that very long. Do not wait. Do not harden your heart today. Put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and live. Live not just this earthly life, but live eternal life with God. And Christian, let us learn to drink from the cup of God's grace. Every day, all day. Our sins are great, but his mercy is more. His mercy endures forever. Every morning, the rite of lamentations tells us we wake up to what? Fresh mercies, new mercies, steadfast love. You drinking from that last week? You drinking from that this morning? You drinking from that grace on Monday morning? Please do. Let's encourage each other to do so. To live by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for what we learn of you in Esther chapter 2, that you're God of providence, you rule creation according to your will, and you're God of grace, you have been better to us than we've been to ourselves, you have been kind to us, though we do not deserve it. And you have provided for us a kingdom, not a perishable kingdom like the kingdom Esther became queen of, but an imperishable kingdom, a a never-ending kingdom, a never-failing kingdom in which the son of glory reigns. You've made that ours through faith. Lord, let let this understanding wash over your people. Let us shower in the acknowledgement of your grace and let us abound with hope because of your kindness. Let us live life expecting grace because that's who you are. And when we find ourselves as exiles in this world tempted to pass, or we find ourselves fighting a battle against the oppressive forces that come against your kingdom. Wherever we are, whatever we do, let us lean into your grace, we pray. In Jesus' name.